listening to Stalin, a space oddity. Written and narrated by Kit Fennessy. Episode 6. Next came the difficult part. They were all difficult parts, but this one was especially difficult. It was ensuring that your atmosphere had the correct chemical balance to support life. By gauging the gravitational forces, my calculations revealed it would be best to have your planet support carbon-based life forms. This was a lighter element than my origin species home, where they had silicon-based structures. It also meant that oxygen would be the optimal element for the carriage of energy. Fortunately, there was plenty of iron already in the structure and plentiful objects nearby that I could use to bombard the earth with, including frozen chunks of ice particles, which became the basis for your oceans and atmospheres that you enjoy today. By careful manipulation, of structures within my extensive genetic library. I then seeded the earth with simple organisms that would eat sulfur and produce oxygen gas as a byproduct. To put it simply, your human philosopher scientist Cosmozoic theory was partially correct. It was my hand that delivered simple but super-resilient spores to your Earth. It was the first life on your planet. I can conclusively confirm that panspermia, the theory of interstellar seeding of the Earth with life, is true. It was accomplished by myself and my ship's facilities. We, the Stamen Project. I am both Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Your entire planet owes not only life, but its oceans, its sky, its moon, its tides, and the seasons, all to us. We, I, the stamen, did it all. It took much, much longer than the seven days your Judaic Christian fables attribute. You may consider me, your creator. I am 
for all intents and purposes, your God. The launch to the moon was more exciting, if excitement's your thing, than the long crawl up the cable we'd had previously. Personally, I detest excitement. We can all see where it gets you. Excitement means danger, and I'd seen enough of both of those. I had my lack of legs as testimony. Speaking of which, for the next leg of our trip, if you'll excuse the recurring theme, it wasn't meant to be a pun, the atomic propulsion technology of our time, as used for deep space travel, was moot in this instance. We were only going as far as the moon, so we're being sent by a slingshot that used gravity to swing us around the Earth. That trick would hurtle us at up to 70,000 kilometres an hour to reach the moon in less than half an Earth day. Not bad for a bunch of advanced monkeys. I'd studied a schematic of the ship that we were taking, and in its design it resembled a shuttlecock with a long needle on the front. The needle was meant to help the craft avoid turbulence when it came into planetary atmospheres, which was basically how it ran. The thing was designed to be flung, jettison fuel, and then burn faster than a line of streaky vindaloo out of a dragon's backside, all the way to the moon. When our moment came to board, we were directed down a long tube into a tiny capsule. There were over 40 people in it all of us wearing flight suits with helmets and carrying our own air supplies. We entered through a side door at the end of a long stanchion that was all latticework, already fully encased in our biosuits. Once we were seated, it was cramped. We sat shunted together like battery chickens, the window to the outside world or universe mere slits. Seated, the doors were sealed. We heard the sound of a large motor droning nearby. The vessel began to shake slightly, even though the long arm that held us was folded and grasping as tightly like a football ready for launch from the universe's greatest quarterback. The throb of the gyros built slowly that became a hum became slightly higher in pitch, and then stopped. Ominously. We all sat in silence, the sound of a torsion click audible through the frame. Time already. It was a distant, scratchy voice on an intercom. Prepare for launch. Door secure, cross-check. Setting for release. 
Blue light is on. Repeat. Blue light is on. Three, two, one. And then the slingshot fired. The arm holding our capsule was slung around by the built-up tension created by the rotor engine at its hub, tripping us from zero to about 700 kilometres an hour in a matter of moments. An articulation extended on the primary projection arm as it unfurled, to more than double its fixed rotor arm speed. Of course, this all happened much faster than I've explained it. We were released and hurled toward the earth, plummeting down, the shuttle's mosquito tweeter glowing white-hot as we passed through the ionosphere, following the plug that had been deployed ahead of us. This plug, also known as a blocking sweeper, was sent just ahead for the first section of the flight, to clear debris. Ellipsis had only had one major incident in a moon launch, and that was when one of the sweeper plugs sent to make the path clear broke off a piece from itself after a large collision on its sweep. It was a bit of a blip that obliterated the pursuing vessel. I'm not a religious person, but I have to admit, I prayed at that moment. Prayed that the sweeper would clear all of the atmospheric debris. Despite my sudden turn to religion, it still made for some hot minutes. we circumnavigated the globe in seconds, moving from day to night, then back into daylight, as quick as that, losing the sweeper plug in front of us. As we came around the planet and pointed towards the moon, the fuel pack had released a terrific burst and we trebled and re-trebled our speed. My brain had been physically pushed to the back of my skull, and I found myself panting in exertion as we rose, the quarter moon above us, Venus winking nearby like the flag of the Ottoman Empire of old. I wondered to myself what my Bloody Mary from the hairway would have had to think about all of this.
So what was the flight itself like? Beyond that initial rush of adrenaline? It was a strange mix of both tension and boredom. Twelve hours with only the sound of telemetry and life support engines humming, the crescent moon growing ever bigger on the screen on the back of the chair in front of me. The bar service was non-existent, which was just as well since the toilet was inside my suit. It wasn't until the end, when we turned in space to decelerate, that we got our first proper view of where we were about to land, the sound of thrusters echoing through the shuttle as we craned our necks to get glimpses of our new home through the tiny windows. The lunar surface was covered in circular structures when seen from above that matched the natural craters, and all of the buildings were clad in white moon rock. This was because the infrastructure that was initially set up had been done so by robots who'd mined the soil and built walls, finding the materials they needed for construction on the moon itself. The robots that built everything were solar-powered and had arrived years before colonisation had started to take place. A fortunate byproduct of the moon's buildings being all made of natural materials was that it reduced the visual pollution for people who were looking up at the moon from Earth. We were on the near side of the moon, after all. The dark side of the moon, incidentally, the other side to which we landed, isn't always dark, by the way. It's called dark as in unknown, because the same face of the moon always points at the Earth. But all of the moon's sides, if a round thing can have sides, get about two weeks of sun every rotation. Oh yeah, that's right. You set the moon in motion, didn't you? Apologies, I forgot. Where's Mamunia? Frida asked, peering over my shoulder. I think that's it down there. The moon's stellar hotel had been designed in a crescent shape and looked like the outline of a half crater. It was almost all glass. The interiors were decked in white. It had been built on the premium side of the moon, the near side, so that guests would always get a view of Earth from their beds. There were large banks of solar panels, tastefully unobtrusive, as well as circular buildings, some built underground like bunkers, for solar radiation as much as anything. And there were even some greenhouses that we spotted, which they must have needed for food. There were also some water plants up there. Water plants, I hear you think? No, not like lotuses or water lilies. You know, as in water generation tech? Water theory had developed a lot over the years, and while the lunar surface was generally considered as dry as the Sahara, in the bottom of craters ice particles had been found. Scientists realised that it was the streams of charged particles from the solar wind hitting the moon's surface that enriched it in ingredients that could make water. Basically, as the sun flung protons at the moon, those particles interacted with electrons in the lunar surface to make hydrogen. These atoms then migrated through the surface and latched onto the abundant oxygen bound in the silica, which is SiO2 for memory, and other oxygen-bearing molecules that make up the lunar soil. Together, hydrogen and oxygen make the basis for water. Good old H2O. So it turned out that water wasn't that special. It wasn't a magical compound, after all. Every rock has the potential to make water, especially after being irradiated by the solar wind. 
Humans just sped up the process by developing solar-powered particle accelerators to turn dust into water. You know that old saying, like getting water out of a stone? It wasn't as hard as you'd think. Oh, you did know about that, about solar particles and rocks turning to ice. That's how you made the oceans too, right? Oh, you just waited for natural processes to act on the solar debris. Silly me. <laughs> no, no, that's quite all right. I, I don't mind your interruptions. No, no, honestly, you're, you're very kind. All right, let's make a deal. I'll tell you what I know, and you can fill me in on all of your creationist capers while I'm asleep, eh? Then there'll be no need for any apologies. Agreed? Great. Now, where was I? Ah, that's right, on the moon. We loitered at the lunar airport. It was very much like the old airports on Earth, but only with less gravity, fewer customers, and the complex was connected by circular subsurface corridors. I ditched the chariot or my wheelchair. In low gravity, it seemed superfluous. I was making do with bouncing around on my hands and stumps, which, as I previously said, was extremely liberating. Our lift was late, and since they'd been in the hold-up, I was partially celebrating my newfound freedom with a burger, making sure I used plenty of hand wipes before I ate. Jacques had disappeared to make more of his myriad calls, probably trying to find out where our transport had got to. Frida, meanwhile, had gone for a wander to kill some time. To the spaceport bookshop of all places, to see if there was anything worth reading. I'd told her she was wasting her time, and bet her five credits that she'd only find terrible detective novels, books on financial management, which might have a swear word in the title, yet another Jack Reacher book, I think they're up to about volume 7,012, and maybe some biographies, most likely of Mark Seven. Did you hear the news? Frida asked, slipping stealthily to my side as I licked my fingers from a small overspill of mustard and ketchup. There was a tone to her voice, an edge. What's that? I replied, the combination of pulse paste and bean curd in my mouth cleaving to my tongue. I swallowed. Don't tell me, I was right, and you lost five credits? I put my half-eaten slop vest into its food clip, carefully wiped my fingers, and turned to her. I was just passing the newsstand. Don't make a scene, Frida said. Yeah, okay. I heard some cries of dismay across the plaza. Anyway, when I went in there... I saw some breaking news on a visit screen in store. Security people were space hopping across an open area. There's been a hit. A hit? The security people I'd spotted were taking long stride jumps towards the melee that had broken out at a departure lounge. On the stairway. They think the taters did it, Gordon. Now, I should say at this point, calling the Russians taters as had entered our contemporary vernacular, was an extremely pejorative term. Basically, you were calling the Russians potatoes. 
the potatoes that they made vodka out of and almost exclusively ate as their national diet since there'd been so many trade sanctions and embargoes placed on them over the previous two centuries. The former Soviet Union's foundation state had become a pariah after kicking off World Wars three and four, so you can hardly blame the rest of the planet. But the Russians were in a bad place, geographically, spiritually, financially, and they were blaming the rest of the world for their woes. All of Russia, economically, was now less important than Poland, even weaker than Slovakia, and they hated that. They sent missiles to take out the stairway after our departure. We're lucky to be alive. What about the intervention tech? Defensive rockets? Magnetic pulse fields? Well, those took the majority of the rockets they sent out. But three bombs slipped through the net. Well, one would have been enough. Yes, but three made sure everyone knew it was deliberate. But Gordon, you're not getting it. They've taken out the cable. There's no hairway to Stephen anymore. How in heaven's name are we going to get back? Frida had a shine to her eyes that I'd never seen before. They were charged, frantic. Jacques no, I said, hearing a confidence in my own voice that I didn't feel. Oh yeah, Jacques, Frida said, smacking contemptuous with her response. Your best mate, that sack de merde, he only invited me up here to get to you. Her anger hissed out of her like air out of a balloon and she quickly deflated, confessing her fears. The project they're working on. He told me it was SIGINT, but it's not. I've been poking around, Gordon. It's mostly AI. I was a cover to get to you. It's funny, but aside from Miyoko expressing a desire to see me on the moon, it was the nicest thing that anyone had said to me in the past six months. Ah, Miyoko. The only one who called me Flash. I thought back to the troubles that the original Flash Gordon had been through. Like the time he was fighting on a revolving disc with spikes coming out of it, suspended in the air in the land of the Hawkmen. The Hawkmen were all drinking out of tankards, laughing, while his girlfriend Gail cried, Flash! Flash! I love you, but we only have 14 hours to save the Earth! That memory gave me a piece of inspiration. Don't panic, I've got it. All we need to do is find somewhere with tankards of ale and a revolving dance floor. I think I'm going to need a whip to get us out of this one too. You have been listening to Stalin, a space oddity. For more information, Visit, visit kitfemacy.com